You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Strange by Nature. I am excited to be back this week. See you guys. We're excited to have you back. Yay! I get to kick things off this week, and I'm actually going to call back to a recent episode of the show that I was not on, but I did listen to. Ooh. I'm flattered that you listened to the ones you're not on. <laughs> Kirk <laughs> talked about the main wolf, main wolf, and yeah. that got oh, me thinking yeah. about um, a topic that had actually been on my list for a while. Specifically, it was the fact that the main wolf apparently smells like weed. Oh, is that fact? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And this got me thinking about smelly animals. Of course. Yeah, there are many. You're not going to. The skunk is most famous. I'm not talking Ah. about skunks today, though. Okay. Cool. No. Okay. Um, Might be. Kirk and Rachel, you talked about foxes. Those foxes are smelly too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole group of animals, the mustelids or weasel family, that. Uh, mm-hmm. are pretty smelly. They like yeah. old cats, wolverines. They have scent glands that they use for marking. And um, another example is civets. Those are the source of a musk of the same name that's been used in perfumes for centuries. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all of these animals, they all produce scents that are kind of, you know, animal. They, they smell musky, oh, okay, yeah. skunky, kind of, you know, stinky, that earthy, animal yeah. kind of smell, right? Are, we, are right. we going a different direction here? We're going a different direction. Ooh, I'm intrigued. The animal, the animal that was on my list smells like something else entirely. This animal is a cat relative from Southeast <gasps> Asia called the I know Binturong. This. Yes. Oh, Binturongs, yeah. Yes. yes. And I know where you're going. Like oh, I'm so excited. Buttered popcorn. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't love buttered popcorn? Right? right? I can attest. I've smelled a bit wrong. I smell like buttered popcorn. You have at a zoo, I take it? Yes. That's okay. I that's that's awesome. I've never um I've never seen one that I recall or smelled one. Um but I've, it's gonna be I've high seen on my list. One, but I don't recall I didn't sniff it, so I can't really I didn't do like a scratch and sniff type experience with it. I was a little <laughs> further away. So I, I cannot attest to the buttered little, popcorn smell. Yeah, I, I can. We were pretty, it, it, the Binturong happened to be pretty close to the, um, the fencing that was there. And then there wasn't much mm-hmm. distance oh, nice. between where I was and where the Binturong was. So... I could smell it. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So specifically, it is actually the Binturong's urine that smells like popcorn. Oh, that's... Yeah. So a scratch and sniff test would not have been successful on my part. No. (laughs) So recently, a team of researchers from uh, several places, including Duke University, were able to isolate different chemicals from the urine. And they discovered mm-hmm. that it contains a chemical called 2-acetyl-1-pyrrolene, which is, in fact, oh, of course. the same chemical that forms when popcorn pops. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
That's Weirdly, uh, yeah, when, when it's formed chemically, uh, it can only form yeah. at very high temperatures, like in a popping corn kernel. Um, okay. But obviously the inside of the binturong is not reaching those temperatures. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope not, no. But they think that it may be made by a bacteria that interacts with the urine and can, and can synthesize this um, using some okay. enzyme or whatever. But all of this got me thinking, are there other animals that smell like food or other unexpected Ooh. things? I've found that um, cows smell like steak. Oh, do they? When you, when, when, you when they get hot enough. Yeah. When they get hot enough, they sure oh, Yes. I'm guessing Her. that's not what you mean. <laughs> that's not what I meant. But even in the spirit okay. Okay. that I, that I am <laughs> intending my question, the answer is yes. <laughs> so I have, I have now a list. This is going to be a listicle list. article Ooh, uh, podcast episode. Very excited. So uh, starting off with larger and smaller yellow ants, which are native to the U.S., and they emit oh, sure, a, yeah. Yeah, a lemon or a citronella scent when they're threatened or crushed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Some of them taste like it, too. Oh, uh, have, do you know from uh, personal experience, Kirk? Um, I know some people do as like sort of a little party trick and stuff. Sure. will eat ants. Um, and some of the different, um, acids and things they produce, uh, actually, you know, are, some of them are lemon flavored, some are chocolate flavored, like ants apparently have a lot of different flavors if you are brave enough to eat them. Yeah. Wow. Good to know. So, you know, are these naturalists who are doing this party trick? Of course they are. (laughs) Right. This just, uh, once again, shows that what a wild and weird group we are. Are, what, yes. Someone's party we're, trick is to eat ants and tell you what flavor they are. I mean, it's maybe not the best way to make friends and influence people. It's like, hey, everybody, I need some ants. Watch me. Like, I mean, oh, there's the weird kid again. Oh, all the people are back. naturalists, right? Then everyone's impressed, yeah. Then everybody has right. a great time. Um, yeah. Moving on to the next animal. Some species of spadefoot toads secrete uh, an irritating defensive substance that some people think smells like peanut butter and apparently can also make you sneeze. I wasn't able to find any scientific literature backing this up, although there were some documents from, you know, more reputable organizations like zoos and state departments of conservation. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the sources were kind of along the lines of some people even say that spadefoot toads smell like peanut butter. Mm. (laughs) Someone mentioned it once. Okay. But, 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 however, I did find a study about the parotid gland secretions of an Australian tree frog that Hmm. said it emitted a nutty odor um, and it was characterized as being like peanut butter. So this does make the toad story more plausible. Okay, and those parotid glands are those big, like, bumps on the back of a toad, Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen those. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, they're like the, people think that they're like the big warts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And they are that, the the substances that give off is what uh, makes a lot of, especially toads, taste really bad. uh, Yes. So they don't get eaten. So it makes sense that there'd be a smell associated with that too. Maybe it's a, it could even be a, a, a thing where the, the more they smell, it's sort of a warning to the predators as their yeah. nose gets close. Like, hey, this is going to, I remember something that smelled like this tasted real bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense evolutionarily. Yeah, especially since memory and scent is so, it is tied so tightly. Yeah, Definitely. very much so. Have you ever smelled a smelt? 
Delta like smelt. Delta smelt. Smelt to smelt. Delta smelt are a uh, now sadly critically endangered species of small fish from the Bay Area of California, and apparently mm-hmm. they smell like cucumber. Oh, that's refreshing. Oh, wow. Yeah, very refreshing. And uh, Rachel, you are wild. up in smelt run territory. Oh yeah. Uh, on Lake Superior, uh, uh-huh. next time there's a smelt run, let us know. Just go sniff some and see if they smell like cucumbers here too. But All it right. is, yeah, there was, I found a web page where okay. uh, there was a little table allowing you to distinguish this species of smelt from some other similar species of smelt. And among, smelt. The, among the lines in the table was smell. And for the, for the uh, Delta smelt, it was cucumber. And for the other one, it was fish. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, like, they're like, this one has a distinct fish, fish odor. odor. <laughs> Seems about right. Yep. I often find fish are kind of fishy smelling. Yes. There you is know, a species well. of stick insect. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Uh, stick, stick insects from Northeast Australia and New Guinea. It's called the peppermint stick insect. One guess. One guess what it smells like. Licorice. Right. I, no, peppermint. I, I, oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Shocking. I, go I was going to say orange it's juice. <laughs> We'll get there. Bunch of s- uh, what? Wow, I'm so sorry you have to deal with us, Victoria. This is what you were missing <laughs> while you were gone yeah. for two episodes. Just us spitballing. Uh, it has an irritating defensive spray that it uses that does indeed smell like peppermint. And this is actually quite unusual for a stick insect because usually mm-hmm. they mostly rely on camouflage for defense. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Male West staying in Australia, a male Western gray kangaroos apparently have quite a strong odor, which many people find curry like. Okay. Huh. Yeah, just the males though. I like curry. Yeah. Curry is good. It's like, uh, I guess they have a nickname of stinkers. So that's not, that would imply that curry stinks. Because inc- incorrect. Yeah. Curry They're is wrong. delicious and I think lovely. It, yes, I agree. Um, but you know, it, mm-hmm. it may be like an offensive version of the like curry smell or something. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't smelled one. It's I mixed, say. It's mixed with kangaroo BO, so that may <laughs> yeah. not be. Might yeah. not be the best smell. Hmm. Uh, next one, yellow spotted millipedes actually emit, uh, emit hydrogen cyanide. It's a defense mechanism. And oh, uh, hydrogen cyanide smells like almonds or cherry cola. So... That's what they smell like. <laughs> Don't yeah. lick your hands, kids. This one, some of our listeners may have heard before because uh, it's kind of been all over the internet. Beavers have a scent gland that is actually mm. used as a perfume ingredient mm-hmm. or weirdly mm-hmm. <laughs> in small amounts in the food industry since it kind of resembles vanilla. Um, oh. But, you know. <laughs> okay, we have synthetic vanilla. I don't think adding exactly. a little. Exactly. No, tiny, tiny amounts of this are used in the food industry. You are so much, so, so much more likely to have um, cheap, readily available vanillin artificial vanilla Mm. flavor in your food rather than. Which is, by the way, a pale imitation of real vanilla. Yes. Yeah. But at least you're not having beaver scent goop. Um, Apparently, Mm. maybe. uh Beaver scent goop. Yep. Not on Mm. my menu. Yep. I don't know if one if you might be able to confirm this, Kirk, as a dog owner, but apparently dog oh. paws often smell like Fritos corn chips. You know, I've heard that, and I've um, heard that too. 
my dog is not in the room. I, I could call her, call either one of them in here, but they, uh, they've been instructed to stay away when daddy's podcasting. So, okay. Um, apparently some people find this to be true and it's due to some harmless bacteria that are, you know, around in the environment and interact with dog paws in this way for whatever reason. The next one I find almost as weird as the Binturong, uh, Crested auklets, which are a small seabird of the northern Pacific Ocean, smell like tangerines during the breeding Ooh, season. Yes. Nice. That's they have so a small... Lovely. Yeah. Right? They have a small area on the back of their neck, which is like a little smell patch, and they sniff each other's necks during courtship. Um, it, it actually gets much, much weirder than this, and I may have to devote a whole episode to the crested auklet because they're... Very strange. Um, Very strange. Yes. Fair. Well, and we've talked about on the show before, too, how for some reason goldfinches smell like maple syrup. Oh, right. And no one no one knows why. But yeah. you know, maybe there's a connection there with, has something to do with uh, breeding or something. But Courtship, yeah. It's so weird. Oh. Huh. And uh, saving the most disgusting for last, apparently bed bugs smell like oh. coriander or cilantro. At least to some people. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I know there's, they've said there's a, a distinct smell mm-hmm. if there's bed bugs. And I, I thought it was almonds, but like, I've heard people say if you come into a hotel room and it has this certain smell, you should like check for bed bugs. But I haven't heard yeah, coriander or it was, know, cilantro. That's interesting. It was described in different ways. Coriander, cilantro, one, play, one website I was looking at said like decayed raspberries, which is weirdly Ooh, specific. That's um, oddly specific, yeah. Uh, apparently it has a smell, but people can't always agree on what it smells like. And it may, you know, it may be a genetic thing. Maybe it smells different to different people. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. At any rate, if you smell coriander in your bedroom or a hotel room and you haven't recently been, you know, grinding spices in there for some, mm-hmm. some purpose, uh, maybe call an exterminator. Uh, don't get me started yeah. on that. bugs. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you know that Rachel had a bed bug experience at her place a of work. Bed, mm. in a bed so. Yeah, more than one. That oh, was like more the than, month mm, of July. One? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised Uh-oh. Rachel hasn't done bed bugs as a topic yet. Oh, uh, wait her for it. Maybe that's, it's, it's still too fresh. Still too fresh. Yeah. yeah. Too soon. Well, that's what I have. My sources this week were many, but my main ones were uh, about the Binturong uh, from the Atlanta Zoo, a, a genuine listicle from treehugger.com about animals that smell like snack foods, <laughs> and <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> an article from the Journal of Chemical Ecology on uh, that, that green tree frog parotid gland uh, secretion. Cool. cool. All right, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, it'll be Kirk's turn. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Last week, I hinted that I was researching a topic, and I somehow got completely distracted by water, so I talked about lakes. I also said that since Rachel did a Kirk topic by talking about space, I wish I had kept to my original topic since it is truly a Rachel topic. So here it is, a week late. I'm so excited. Let's all go where? Australia. The ocean. The ocean. ocean. No, 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 no. The ocean. 
The ocean. The other, the other Rachel topic area. Oh, so good. I'm ready. I want you to imagine you're swimming in the warm waters off the Galapagos Islands mm. when you spy a strange oh. looking creature just past the edge of the reef. Uh, first There's of all, a lot it's, of it's a fish. It's clearly a fish. That much okay. is clear, but um, it's one of the strangest fish you've ever encountered. When I say the word fish, a certain image likely comes to mind. And part of that image is a particular body plan. So fish are often vertically flat. Also, they're taller than they are wide, if that makes sense. Yes. I don't know about you, Kirk, but when I think of a fish, I think of a bumblebee. <laughs> of course, because <laughs> bumblebees are fish. Okay, anyone who has not heard that episode of the podcast is like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's nice callback. Thanks. Um, this particular fish is actually wider than it is tall. It looks almost like someone maybe stepped on it and flattened it out. <laughs> And it isn't totally flat, though, like a flounder, um, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with those. But a flounder is really just a fish that swims on its side. These fish uh, are upright. But they just aren't, you know, flat. They're, they're more wider than tall. Uh, and they average huh. about 16 inches long, fully grown. Also strange, besides the fact that they're kind of like flattened out, uh, like a bit of a pancake, is that um, they have weird fins. The pectoral, pelvic, and anal fins all point downward and what? are quite stiff. The fins are so strange, in fact, that hmm. they don't really even use them for swimming. They use their fins for walking. That's oh. right. This fish walks along the bottom of the ocean. Really, really weird. And the weird features Aww. don't end there. Pucker up. This fish has bright red lips that look straight out of a lip plumping injection gone wrong that was then covered with like bright red lipstick. What I'm talking about is the red lipped batfish. Have you you heard of these? No, I have. They they are pretty strange. Oh, Uh, the weirdness continues. The red lip batfish not only is weirdly shaped and walks on fins and has big old red lips, but it also has another interesting adaptation. Red lipped batfish have a strange growth. Uh, I think it's the best way to describe it uh, is that they have like a unicorn horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, a schnoz. It isn't, it isn't I a think horn, you could though. call it a schnoz. A schnoz, yeah. Um, it's actually a fleshy projection out of what is essentially their forehead. It lo- does look kind of like a big, I was thinking of like a Pinocchio nose kind of. Uh-huh. It's actually called um, an Elysium. And the Elysium uh, is very cool. Uh, it's actually made out of the dorsal fin of the fish. Oh. Uh, so when they mature, it starts to grow oh. forward and it becomes this like Pinocchio nose looking thing. Uh, if we're going to call it like a, um, you know, or said mentioned it looks like a unicorn horn. If we we're going to call it a unicorn horn, it had probably better say that it's a magic unicorn horn to be more accurate because, uh, I mean, you know, unicorns are magical, right? But of course. Maybe it's more like a, a magic wand. Think of it as like a magic wand. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the fish is deep underwater and they can go to depths of 250 feet, that's 76 meters and non-stupid, uh, <laughs> they simply say the magic words, <laughs> Lumos, and the tip of the Elysium begins uh. to glow. So I'm sorry, I have a, I'm a Harry Potter nerd, uh, which has been well established. Yeah. They don't actually have to say Lumos, okay? It just lights up without a magic phrase. Oh. So uh, sad. This light is naturally a lure, as you might imagine, uh, yeah. to attract smaller fish, 
which then get eaten by the red-lipped batfish. Uh, batfish mm-hmm. are then are thus uh, one of the two hundred types of anglerfish that are lurking in the deep. And like other anglerfish, batfish make the glowing color by hosting millions of glowing photobacteria in their ilysium. So they also, one thing I found that was really fascinating is it's not just the light from this bacteria. They actually grow crystals in the what? tip of their ilysium what? to help ref- better reflect the light. Yeah. That's cool. They are growing crystals to help like make sure that light reflects wow. out, which is just super cool. That one blew my that mind. wild. Um, I, I was able to find... Uh, one source that claimed that there are different unique photobacteria for each species of marine mammal that animal or animal that glows. Um, so it could be, although I don't know if this has been 100% tested, but it could be that this specific bacteria species responsible for the glow in the red lip batfish uh, is, you know, completely unique from any other one out there. You know, uh-huh. I mean, related to, right, but a unique species. Um and I, I could not sadly find any references that talked about what specific bacteria species is in the red lip batfish. So it could be that that just hasn't even been isolated yet, which is pretty amazing. So batfish are super cool. Uh, they walk. Mm-hmm. They lure other fish to their death with entrancing lights. Uh, they have <laughs> these huge red lips. Uh, incidentally, uh, it is thought that the red lips play a role, probably most likely in sexual selection in the species, <laughs> essentially Naturally. the same as they do in humans. <laughs> of course. Um, but I, that's all really amazing. Um, but I want to give you some little, what I think is interesting extra info here. When I was mm. researching this topic, I started off on Wikipedia, as I'll often do. It's a good general place to get like a, a broad overview of a species. Um, I usually check out any like sources listed and try to read the primary sources as well. And I basically might use Wikipedia as like a jumping off site, right? Editors there often have already found good sources and I can it can save me time hunting them all down on my own. It can also just be a really great site when we need general information, uh, such as like the average size of the animal or habitat or some kind of dump numbers that we want to share uh, on mm-hmm. the show. So when I was looking for info on the le- red lip batfish, of course, this, uh, you know, the Wikipedia page popped up right away. Um, and I was looking around and I found there wasn't a lot of other info out there in the world on these. There's actually lots and lots of websites about them, but almost all of them are just copy and pasted directly from the Wikipedia page mm. or like mm. very lightly rehashed where you're like, well, this seems like a familiar read. <laughs> um, and there was one fact on that Wikipedia page that really stuck out to me. It states correctly that they are only found in the waters around the Galapagos Islands. They do have a relative that lives further north called the rosy lip batfish, but that's a, a different related species. And the article mm-hmm. then claims that weirdly, a handful of red-lipped batfish have been caught off the coast of California in fishing nets, but it's unclear if perhaps this is a closely related species as it seems really far out of their range. And I yeah. was like, whoa, that's wow. super cool. Now I'm intrigued because this is a fish that walks. Right. How would it walk from the Galapagos Islands in, you know, South America <laughs> Famously, uh, to California? Famously, fairly far that, away to California. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that seemed unlikely to me, but it caught my eye because we talk about the unlikely and the weird on this show. And I was like, this could be a really great hook to kind of like lead into my story about this species. So what did I do? I, I want to look for an original source that made that claim and maybe get a little background information. And again, I could find plenty of websites that quoted the Wikipedia entry, but no primary sources about red lip batfish in California. So what else to do but check the citations? 
On that page, citation number six in the article is a journal article uh, called, I, I get to pronounce this, uh, Ogcocephalus darwini, which is the scientific name of the red-lipped batfish, yep. a new batfish endemic at the Galapagos Islands. This was published in Copia in 1958. And in mm. the article, I found the following interesting paragraph. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Z. elater is generally recorded as ranging from Mexico to Panama, but it occurs as far north as Point Conception, California, where two specimens were caught in halibut nets in January 1945. One of them here figured. Other species mm. have been taken in Southern California. So what's, I think this is the paragraph they were quoting. Z. elater? Uh, or, or, what's Z. elater? Exactly. That is a huh. completely different species of fish, uh, uh, right. which is the um, Zaliutus Zal, uh, <clears throat> elater, also known as the roundel batfish, not the red lip batfish. And the mm -hmm. context was that the author was talking about similar related species in the Pacific because they were describing a new species of fish and they wanted to talk about what other species have been found. So what likely okay. happened is that a Wikipedia editor misunderstood the journal article and then added the incorrect information on the Wikipedia. And now hundreds of sites around the web have copied that bad information about the species. Now, I'm a giant nerd, as you know, so I happen to be an editor on Wikipedia. Of course uh, And I started you are. a discussion with... I know. I started a discussion with other editors about revising the error on the page. And that's one of the cool things about Wikipedia. It will eventually get fixed and entries do get better and better over time. But how many other websites that copied that information will ever yeah. get updated? I'm guessing not many. So mm -hmm. the red lip batfish, uh, it's a super freaky, weird fish, but they probably have not walked from the Galapagos to California. It's actually a great lesson to verify the information you see online, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, it's, it's super cool species. Just want to talk about it. And uh, my sources were Wikipedia, um, complete with errors, and also the Smithsonian. Thanks, Smithsonian. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Kurt. getting things right. You're welcome. We're going to go to break, and then Rachel will be back with more goods for us. Welcome back, everyone. So this topic came to me from one of our listeners and a friend of the show and friend of ours, Ashley. So hey, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> okay. I'm very excited so, to see what oh. Ashley sent to you. Ooh, you should be. So as I am a big nerd, as well as Ashley being a big nerd. Um, well established. Well established. Yeah, she would not. She would take pride in you saying that. Absolutely. Um, I do listen to nature podcasts and science podcasts. And from time to time, I do also hear topic ideas. Usually it's like a small little tidbit, which ends up kind of like what you were saying with Wikipedia, Kirk, where I'll hear something and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And then it has me go and yeah. do more research into that topic. And when that happens, I do credit Absolutely. the show. But it doesn't happen very often, I found. Uh, so Ashley heard this little fact mm -hmm. that was just dropped in a podcast we both listened to, Ologies, and texted me and was like, "Oh yeah, tell me more. <laughs> so Ologies recently did a whole episode which was dedicated to squirrels. We've done episodes on squirrels before. At least certain species. 
So sure. today uh-huh. I'm talking about the southern flying squirrel. Nice. Oh, nice. So we've talked about flying Love foxes. Love a good flying squirrel. Flying squirrels um, are great. They're so great. Uh, which is very different from a uh, flying squirrel. So to give a little bit of detail. Yeah, yeah very much so. Uh, the, fl- the southern flying squirrel is a squirrel. It's about the size of a chipmunk. So they have olive brown gray dense fur on their back with a white underbelly and a tail that actually is pretty flat. They're about eight to 10 inches in length, which doesn't include the tail. Sorry, Kirk. Mm-hmm. I don't have it in smart person. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so a little bigger the than big, a chipmunk, actually. It is generally a little bit bigger than a chipmunk, but they're kind of chipmunk yeah. shaped. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. The big thing about a southern flying squirrel or any flying squirrel is the flap of skin that connects from about where their wrist is to their ankle. This allows this little squirrel to glide, not truly fly. Uh, and there's been recording of southern flying or flying squirrels gliding up to 300 feet, which is insane. Wow. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. Generally speaking, most of their little glides are 20 to 30 feet. But still, that's more than I can glide. To glide, the squirrel has to jump. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Rachel, if we threw you out of a high enough airplane, I bet you could glide a whole lot further. You know, you're right. You're right. Do I have paragliding? Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Out of a tree, though, they have you beat. Out of a tree, tree, they have you beat. Absolutely, they do. Uh, so in order to glide, the squirrel has to jump, fully extend their limbs, and that to, which increases their surface area and allows the flap of skin between their wrist and their ankle to have tension, pretty much. And they're increasing mm-hmm. their surface area, which allows them to glide. What's wild to me is that while they are gliding, this glide is fully under this squirrel's control. They're able to stabilize oh, yeah. in the air using their tail, using it as an air brake. They're able to control different um, angles on their wrists and ankles and help direct themselves uh, as well as work with the different aerodynamics of the air around them to get to where they're going and potentially increase their flight, which is wild. Mm-hmm. Just see them They're maneuvering their little furry bodies through the air. Mm-hmm. Like, personally, like, I think when, when I think of, like, a paraglider or when humans go gliding or anything like that, generally speaking, we have some control, but we're not fully under, we're not fully in control. Uh, not like okay. a flying squirrel. Or at least that's my understanding of a paraglider. I might be wrong. Who knows? Anyway. So the big thing I wanted to talk about, which is why why Ashley texted me in the first place, was something about the flying squirrel that was actually discovered by accident in 2019. Oh, oh I bet I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. Let's, admit, let's hear it. So flying squirrels fluoresce bubblegum pink under <laughs> UV light. 
that's so what funny. I thought you were going to say. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. So <sighs> what happened was a forestry professor uh, named John Martin up at Northland College, which is actually in my neck of the woods. So that's very fun. Uh, was it sounds looking... exactly like the kind of thing that would happen at Northland, by the way. Oh, 100%. So John Martin was in the forest at night looking at lichens and fungi and plants with a UV light, flashing them, trying as, to like figure it out as you do, right? And he heard a little flying squirrel chitter and he pointed, automatically he pointed his flashlight at it, not thinking about the fact that it was a UV flashlight, not a regular <laughs> not flashlight. Not much, right? Yeah. And saw a flash of bright pink and saw the squirrel fluoresce. That's just great. So, of course, he goes back to work and he tells his co-worker, Paula, Paula Anik, or Paula Anish. I'm going to go with Anik, who actually studies rodents at Northland College. So she went off to study. Uh, she w- put together a team of students. And they used study skins from the, the Science Museum of Minnesota, from those collections, w- as well as different museums, as well as the ones in, at Northland College and in the area. And they found that only flying squirrels fluoresce because they checked uh, ages, they checked... Uh, sexual dimorphism. They were looking for different species to see if all squirrels fluoresce or is it just the flying squirrels? And there's a lot of questions along those lines that they were looking at. And they found that really only the flying squirrels, all the flying squirrels in North America fluoresce this bright pink. So cool. Which is super cool. Does it have something to do with them being nocturnal? Great question. What a lead up. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But the current <laughs> thought to why is still being debated. But similar fluorescence has been found in possums around oh. North mm. America, which do share the similar nocturnal habits of flying squirrels. And I'll tell you, and, it also has been found in. Oh, you're going to say it. Oh, nope. Go for it. I was like, are you going to say owls? owls? No, but that is also very oh. fair. Yes, it's also been found in owls. It has been found, found in, owls. Uh, in owls. I know when we do bird banding uh, mm-hmm. of owls, you can Bright tell how, how old the feathers are by shining a black light on them. The newer feathers fluoresce bright, bright pink. And mm-hmm. I know that's been documented in saw-wet owls. And yes. I've only ever seen it talked about with saw-wet owls. I happen to work with one of my coworkers who is an owl, uh, mm. <laughs> my, uh, uh, <laughs> who is a barred owl. Uh, and Y'all so when curious, she had huh? feathers coming in, uh, it was, I happened to be in a spot that was dark with her one time. So I had my black light with me and shining on her feathers. And I can tell you that barred owl feathers also are, are fluoresce pink under a black light. But I don't know if that's ever been written up anywhere scientifically, but it's something I've I observed. I think it, it is. has. I'm assuming yes, it yeah. has, but I, okay. um, let's just say this is a good lead up for next week. Oh, interesting. Fabulous. All right. Hmm. So, because of these animals, they share those nocturnal habits. At that time of night, because there's more, it's low light conditions uh, and it's dusk, there's actually a lot more UV light that 
I guess is around. Okay. So when flying squirrels and possums and owls are more active, there's more UV light around. So one of the thoughts is huh. that it could be used for communication. One thought is that it could be right. used for um, showing how... One thought, which has kind of already been discredited, one thought was that maybe they use it for sexual selection, which was kind of discarded because they don't... It, there's no difference between males or females. Another thought was okay. potentially... you. Uh, they might be potentially using it as a type of camouflage as they're flying. They can be mistaken for like owls as they're flying because of the fluorescence. Oh. Interesting. Oh, okay. So, but again, we don't exactly know why. We don't even know how the squirrels are doing this. So... Wow. New science. It's so exciting. Ashley, I'm sorry I don't have a real answer for you, but fun. <laughs> exciting <laughs> new have, science. We have a um, flying squirrel taxidermy uh, at my place of work, and now I'm like, I got to get the black light out and see if it, uh, <laughs> if it fluoresces. It should, actually. Cool. That would yeah. be really cool. That's so cool. Oh, so fun. All right. Well, that's what I have for you both and for everyone else today. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will Thanks see you next here. week. Thanks. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.